Who are we? Who are God's people? What does it mean to be God's people? More importantly, how do God's people know who they are? How do God's people know who they are? You see, the fact is there are lots of competing voices that would seek to tell you who you are. There are lots of stories that seek to define you. Stories that have been told about you by your parents. Stories that you tell yourself about things you did or things you wish you had done. Stories told to you by your friends. Stories told to you by your enemies. Dan Allender, famous Christian counselor, says that in a lot of ways, you could think of the fundamental reality of what's going on in our, in our lives as a story war. A story war. There are competing stories. And this passage tonight is about the story that God tells that defines us as the people of God. It's a story that defines who we are and shapes us and molds us. It's a story that's worth telling again and again. As a matter of fact, it's the story that's told more often than any other story in the Old Testament. It's told by the prophets. It's told in the Psalms. People sing about this story. People make reference to this story when they're in difficult circumstances. Um, This is a defining story. It's one of those stories that really um, tells God's people who they are. So we're going to look at it tonight. It actually, the part we're going to look at starts uh, at the end of chapter 13. It's the story of the crossing of the Red Sea or the Exodus. How did Israel finally get free from Egypt? And as we look at this, um, we're going to consider this story and why it matters so much. Um, I'm going to start picking up at uh, chapter 13, verse 17, which isn't on the little paper. If you took the paper and you don't have a Bible, hang on. I'm coming to chapter 14, but I'm going to read some verses from chapter 13 first. So just listen. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt armed for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the sons of Israel swear an oath. He had said, God will surely come to your aid And then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. After leaving Succoth, they camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way. And by night, in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. And now we move on to chapter 14, which I'm going to read from this paper because it's a lot easier to see than this Bible. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to turn back and a camp near Pi-Haroth between Migdal and the sea. There to camp out. He gives them all these directions. Here's basically what he says. He says, okay, you're going this way. Turn around and camp over here. Okay. And the place that God has them camp is a very vulnerable place militarily. They're hemmed in by mountains. 
and by a Red Sea in front of them. Okay, that's what he's telling them to do. And then he says, I'm doing this so that Pharaoh will come after you. He'll think you're confused because it looked like you were going this way and then you turned around and now you're going the opposite way. He's going to think you're lost in the wilderness. He's going to take heart. He's going to send out his best chariots to come after you. <laughs> and Israel must be thinking, well, that's a great plan. <laughs> you know, um, is, there, is there more to this plan? That's not a great plan. Um, but that's exactly what happens. Um, and so down in verse 10, we'll pick it up. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians. It's a very vivid language, like, oh, there they are. They're upon us, marching after them. The Israelites, they were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone? Let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Actually, the NIV is, is very nice there. But what Moses really tells them is, the Lord will fight for you. Shut up. That's what he says. It's not polite. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God who had been traveling in front of Israel's army. Remember at the end of 13, it said the angel always stayed in front. Now the angel withdraws and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side. So neither went near the other all night long, neither army, right? Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, that means the very end of the night, The Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He made the wheels of their chariots come off so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak, the sea went back into its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, indication even of how confused they were, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, With a wall of water on their right and on their left, that day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. 
And Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that you would bless even the reading of your word. And now we pray you'd bless the foolishness of preaching to give us um, a life-giving vision of who you are and what you're like. Help us to understand this story that gives us our identity and teach us to sing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I pray teach us to sing because the very next chapter, I won't read that whole chapter, Um, Justin quoted a couple of the verses in the call to worship. The whole next chapter is a song. And we're going to talk about why that is. But here's what we're going to talk about um, tonight. This story that defines God's people. The first thing we're going to look at is, is the idea that God's people are defined by an act of deliverance. Then we're going to see how God's people are defined by the story in particular. It's a story. And, and what is the significance of that? Then we're going to talk about how God's people are formed by their singing. In particular, singing the story. So there's an act of deliverance, which then gets told over and over and over again, becomes a defining story for God's people. And finally, we find in the very next chapter, it's a story that's worth singing about. And God's people turn it into a song. So um, what do we want to get from this uh, idea that we're defined by this act of deliverance? There's a couple points. The first thing is not on your outline, but I want to make mention of this. There is a certain logic if you will, to the judgment that the Lord brings upon the Egyptians. You remember last week we talked about the tenth plague. The tenth plague is when the destroyer, the destroying angel, goes through and kills all of the firstborn. And if you remember, part of the way that Pharaoh had oppressed God's people was by killing all the male babies. God has answered that. We've got to remember always in this thing, it's not just about a people against a Pharaoh. It's about the Lord God against Pharaoh, who is a God in Egypt. And you see that several times in the passage I just read. The Lord says, then Egypt will know that I am the Lord, not Pharaoh, not the sun, not the moon. Not, you know, I am the Lord. And it's important that that is understood So there's a logic to that. There's also a logic to this idea that the the Egyptian army will be wiped out by water. Because if you recall, after the Egyptian um, decree that all the male babies should be killed, right? The other thing that Pharaoh had done for babies, right, that wasn't such a great thing, was throw all those babies into the Nile, right? And God takes up for his own. Back in Exodus chapter 4, he said, Israel is my firstborn son, and I will deal with Pharaoh, who has oppressed and enslaved my firstborn son. So this act of deliverance is a long time coming, but when it comes, it is an answer, is an answer to the arrogance through which Pharaoh has been oppressing God's people. And the way the story of Exodus puts it, it's much bigger than just one nation against another nation. The way the book of Exodus starts, it says that the Israelites were being fruitful and multiplying and filling the land. In other words, from God's perspective, they are doing what he made them to do. 
God created mankind, you read back in Genesis, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Israel is doing that even in the midst of their captivity in Egypt. And then Egypt tries to stand in their way from glorifying God and being who God wants them to be. So that's the big picture of what's going on here. But now we look at this act of deliverance in particular. There's a couple things to note. The first is it was a deliverance that was promised long beforehand. And Israel knows this and understands this. The, the reason we see that in this passage is this thing about the bones of Joseph. You see, Joseph had died in Egypt. But Joseph died in Egypt trusting in the promise God had made to Abraham hundreds of years before, that I will deliver my people from Egypt. And so when Joseph died, he made his son swear that they would keep his bones. And one day when the Lord brought them out of Egypt, he made them swear that they would take his bones with them. So the text here is saying, look, they're taking Joseph's bones with them. The promise The promise has been their orientation. The promise has been precious to them. And they're still trusting in this promise. The the second thing is this deliverance was absolutely not based upon their faith. The Israelites do not deserve to be delivered. As a matter of fact, they complain about it, don't they? They say, look... There weren't enough graves in Egypt that you had to bring us out to the desert to die? I mean, the Lord had just done ten plagues. Very significant things showing that he cared about his people and that he was powerful and could take care of them. And now, at the first sign of trouble, admittedly a pretty serious situation that they're in, but at the first sign of trouble, they turn upon God and upon Moses. So the one thing that you can't say is that the parting of the Red Sea was because these people were so wonderful. They weren't. They don't even have the Red Sea parted before they've already sinned and said, we want to go back to Egypt. We were better off in Egypt. (coughs) The great irony, of course, is that God's people, God's people should be those who say, life or death is secondary to whether I serve the Lord. But they're saying, it doesn't matter, you know, whether we can serve the Lord or not. What matters is that we live. So this is, you know, this is about the opposite, the the most opposite you could be into the way a person of faith should be living. They're weak. They're weak people. They're ungrateful. They don't have any faith. And God delivers them anyway. Now, I don't know about you, but that gives me great hope and great encouragement that the Lord's deliverance is not based on how wonderful the deliverees are. These people don't deserve it at all. They deserve to be floating on the banks of the Red Sea just as well as the Egyptians. They don't deserve this act of deliverance, right? And this is what the Bible says about the deliverance that we have through Christ as well. It's always this way. The people that are delivered never deserve it. In Romans chapter 5, Paul says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He says, this is the demonstration of God's love. This is what God's love is like. Get this, while we were still sinners, while we were still spitting in his face, God died for us. That's what God's love is like, right? 
And, and, and I love that the Israelites didn't edit this part out of the story. Because, you know, if they had, it's a much different story. All true stories, Christian stories, should always include the brokenness, the lack of faith, the death. It's important. It's vital to the story. You see, the good news that Christians celebrate is that God brings stories of life out of the stories of death and lack of faith. God is writing a story that redefines every other story. See, the Israelites here are are telling a particular story. God has screwed up. He brought us out here to kill us. And God says, no, that's not the story that's going to carry the day. That's not the story of what's really going on here. I'm writing a very different story. It was a deliverance, this act of deliverance, that seemed impossible to accomplish. And understand, the text is very specific, that the Lord made it as impossible a situation as it could possibly be. They were heading this way, and he makes them turn around so that the Egyptians decide, hey, let's take after offer to these people. And you may think, well, that's weird. Why did Pharaoh let them go, and then he chases them? I think the best way to understand that is way back, all the various speeches that Moses and Pharaoh had back and forth, one of the things that Moses had said several times was, let us go three days into the desert so that we can worship the Lord. And it seems that Pharaoh must have thought that's all they wanted to do. I'm letting you go for three days. But then he realizes, wait, they're not just going for three days. They've left. I'm not sure we want that. And he takes off after him. I think that that's the way to make sense of this. He takes off after him. And God actually entices him to do that. Because God is not done with Pharaoh. The, you know, here's the, the thing. You know, you, we wrestle with this. Like, all the Egyptians get killed. What are we supposed to do with that? Here, here's what we do with that. Everybody in this story deserves to be killed. God has every right to bring judgment in the here and now. Most of the time, he doesn't. Most of the time, he doesn't. We're going to see in the story, you know, there's other stories where it talks about how the Lord breaks out among his people. There are times when the Lord says, the judgment that you deserve, I'm going to bring now. Most of the time, thank goodness, His response to people that don't deserve it is patience, pleading. But sometimes judgment day has come. Judgment day has come for the Egyptians. It's not a pretty sight. And judgment day is deserved by by the Israelites. But they don't get it yet. They don't get it yet. But God deliberately hends them in, puts them in a trap. Why? Because what he's trying to teach them is that you need to depend completely upon me. You have no ability to save yourselves. No ability to save yourselves. So it is with the deliverance that Christ brings, right? The Bible is so clear to tell us that when Christ comes into someone's life, he comes to them as someone who is dead in their sins and trespasses. This is all Ephesians chapter 2 language. Dead in our sins and trespasses. By nature, objects of wrath, enslaved to our sinful nature. A little later in Ephesians 2, Paul says that we were without God and without hope in the world. It's pretty dismal. But this is, this is where God brings his salvation to make his glory known. When we have no hope in the world. 
It was a miraculous deliverance. It was a miraculous deliverance. Now I know, you know, scholars, you can get on the Discovery Network. There's all, it seems like there's always some show um, every month or two about trying to come up with naturalistic explanations for the ten plagues or for this deliverance. And, you know, even in the text, there's the thing about the wind. And so some people say, well, you know, see, here's a clue in the text that really it was a really strong wind, and that's, there's a perfectly natural explanation. The text does not really go there. The text makes it very clear that this was a pretty incredible situation, a miraculous situation. But here's the thing. Just because the Lord uses wind doesn't mean that it's not miraculous. We live in a day and age where most of us are deists. Most of us believe that God set the world running and then he's not really involved in it. People in the ancient world, and the ancient Israelites, didn't think that way at all. So for them to say that God did it and that he used an east wind is, is to say it's as miraculous as if he did it and we have no idea how because there's nothing that we see. All of a sudden the, the, way, you know, the water's just parted. This is a miraculous deliverance. There's no way around it. There's no way around it. Now, I know that in some of the Old Testament classes, they, you know, they suggest that maybe it was the Reed Sea and not the Red Sea. I don't have time to get into all that. I don't think that that's what it was. That would be saying that they crossed through in a marshy area. And the idea of the walls of water on both sides, it doesn't really fit the story. It may make it seem less supernatural. And if you're looking for a naturalistic explanation, maybe that makes more sense. But the word, you know, is not translated Reed Sea in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation. It's translated Red Sea. It's a miraculous deliverance as well. The Red Sea was the end of Egypt's power, right? Their power during this period was waning in Canaan, in the Promised Land. And so this is the way the the Bible tells the story. This is the end of the deal. They've reached the end of Egypt, and they've gotten away miraculously, miraculously. And it was a deliverance, notice this, accomplished by God putting himself between his people and that which threatened to destroy them. The text is very clear that it's like goes out of its way to make sure you get that point right at the end of chapter 13 it said the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud was always in front of them always led them from in front but then in chapter 14 you realize well not always there was this one time that God moved behind them to stand between his people and that which threatened to destroy them What a beautiful picture of the gospel this is, right? The heart of the gospel. Jesus takes the wrath of the Father that was to be poured out on his enemies. And Jesus stands in the place there. You've got to remember, again, the faith that the Egyptians suffer is the faith that the grumbling Israelites deserve. And it's also the faith that Jesus willingly took on the cross. We sang about it tonight. Right? When we sang that hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, He, Jesus, to rescue me from danger, interposed His precious blood. I know there's some hymnals that change that to, you know, um, how, how do they say it? Save me by His precious blood. You know, He to rescue me from danger, save me by. It's so weak. Interp- I know you don't use the word interposed very much, but it's a great word. And you know what it means, right? It means He gets in the way. Jesus gets in the way, and he takes the full onslaught of the Father's wrath. Right? This is such a wonderful picture of what God will do one day in Jesus on the cross. So that's the act of deliverance. 
And God's people also are defined by the story. Now, to talk about this, we have to, I have to say something. I have to cure you of this curious modern idea that stories are inherently untrue. We think, you know, if somebody's telling a story, well, it can't be true. And the fact is, stories are basic to every worldview. You don't, you don't think the way you think just because you've been taught facts and ideas in school. Stories make up so much of what you think. They may be true stories. They may not be true stories. But stories are basic to our understanding of reality. Stories are basic to how cultures teach the most important things, the deepest beliefs about who they are. I like this by um, N.T. Wright great New Testament scholar, he says that stories are often wrongly regarded as a poor person's substitute for the real thing, which is to be found either in some abstract truth or in statements about the, quote, bare facts. Stories are a basic constituent of human life. The whole point of Christianity is that it offers a story which is the story of the whole world. It offers a story. Stories are basic to who we are, and it's true even of you, even in the modern age. One of my favorite books is this book by Philip Sampson called Six Modern Myths. He's a British sociologist, and he talks about various myths that really carry so much of the understandings people have about science and about the way the world works in our culture, even in our day, in our day where it's so often assumed that we believe things because it's been proven. No, the fact is you believe so many of the things you believe because of stories. He says it this way. He says, it's widely assumed that reason, science, and history have replaced stories as the basis for our understanding of the world. But if we look at the way that our everyday knowledge of science circulates and is passed on from one generation to the next, we find stories, not mathematics. Most of us have met Newton as the man who had an apple fall on his head. But few of us have gone on to read the Principia Mathematica with its notable lack of vegetable references. You know the story about Newton, but you've never read his book. You've not tested his theories, but you believe it's true, right? And he goes on, he says, you know, most of you um, have heard of black holes. You probably haven't read Stephen Hawking, but you've watched Star Trek, right? Stories have so much to do with shaping who we are and the way we think the world works. The fact is, so much of what we know rests not on facts or reasoning, but on persistently repeated stories. And that's not just a bad thing. It's the way we are made as human beings. Why? Because we're made in the image of the greatest storyteller who ever lived, who who delights in telling us wonderful, amazing stories. And stories have their own way of working their magic. Flannery O'Connor, one time, the great Southern writer, was asked about one of her short stories. Somebody asked her, what what does this mean? What is this story about? She said, if I could tell you that, I wouldn't have to write a story. We're always wanting to boil stories down to sort of little abstract principles. What's the point of this story? But, But when you do that, you actually miss the way stories work. Now, one of the great tragedies of the evangelical church is it's bought into one of the assumptions of modernism. 
Modernism says that stories are superfluous. They don't really matter. What matters are sort of boiling it down to the truth, the kernel of truth. Strip the, strip the story out and just get to the truth. And for so many, many years, the, the evangelical church in North America has preached sermons that are basically like, here's how to have a happy marriage. Instead of telling stories, remembering the stories that mold us and shape us, we boil it down to what you need to do or what you need to know. And, and, and it's such a tragedy because God, God doesn't really give us very much of that kind of stuff. I guess you could argue that there's some of that stuff in the Proverbs, but you really search in vain if you search the Bible trying to find all these little truths about what you're supposed to do. And even the Proverbs, I think, are, are there to frustrate your attempt to do this because there are two Proverbs back to back. One says, answer a fool according to his folly. The other one right next to it says, do not answer a fool according to his folly. So, you know, if you're faced with a fool, how do you answer him, right? The, the, the Bible is not trying to just be like a little rule book. It's a story. It's a grand story that invites your imagination. You can't be a good Christian without using your imagination. One of the tragedies of legalism is that it says the imagination is not necessary. Just go to some preacher, go to some teacher, go to some book, and let them tell you exactly what you're supposed to do. But see, the Bible doesn't do that. The Bible says, love God and love your enemies. And it doesn't spell out exactly how you're supposed to do that. Which means if you want to follow Jesus, your imagination is required. We don't like that. It's why legalism is an attractive option to so many people. I just want somebody to tell me what to do. But God doesn't play that game, right? This is so important for us to understand here. Stories matter. Stories matter. Um, And N.T. Wright goes on, he says, one of the reasons stories are so important is they're particularly good at subverting other stories. Stories, he says, are actually peculiarly good at modifying or subverting other stories and their worldviews. Where head-on attack would certainly fail, parables and other stories hide the wisdom of the serpent behind the innocence of of the dove, gaining entrance and favor, which can then be used to change assumptions which the hearer would otherwise keep hidden away for safety. He says this, tell someone to do something, and you change their life for a day, but tell someone a story, and you change their life. He goes on, talks about that. I don't have time to go through that whole quote, so I put it on there for you. Stories are full of plot twists and good drama, and that's what this is too. Too often, you see, Christians I think one of the reasons that so many people are not very interested in Christianity in our culture is we just don't tell it as a very interesting story. We try and boil it down to, well, here's what you need to do. You just need to pray this prayer and invite Jesus into your life. But gosh, there's nothing wrong with that at one level. But another level, how uncreative compared to the story that we have here in the gospel. This story when it looked like all was lost. And God sends his son to live and die in the place of people who spit in his face, right? Isn't that the kind of story that invites you in and you say, I want to know more about people like this. I want to know more about a God who's like this. We need artists, I think, to help us tell stories. But I think all of us, artists or not, need to learn how to tell better stories. One of my uh, favorite uh, stories along this line is by uh, Marva Dawn. She tells about 
this um, guy, Vaslav Havel, who was both a playwright and the president of the Czech Republic. And he was asked one time, how is it that the revolution to overthrow communism in Czechoslovakia happened really in a bloodless way and also with more staying power than the, than the revolutions in some of the other Soviet satellites? And he said this, this is amazing. Um, he said that in Czechoslovakia, we had our parallel society. And in that parallel society, we wrote our plays and sang our songs and read our poems until we knew the truth so well that we could go out to the streets of Prague and say, we don't believe your lies anymore. And communism had to fall. Were you all old enough to remember that on the news? When these people just started surrounding the president's house. And they just, it was like a big sit-in. They just said, we don't believe your lies anymore. I actually um, have a friend who is friends with um, a man who was in the Orthodox Church, one of the, the priests in the Orthodox Church who preached a sermon that night on Joshua marching around the walls of Jericho. The people got so incensed, they marched out of the church and started marching around the president's house. They didn't stop, and he resigned, and communism fell. Right? Stories. Powerful Stories. We need, we need artists to help us tell stories to each other so that we can go out in the world and say, we don't believe your lies anymore about success. We believe a story that says success is not found in what we do, but what in God has accomplished for us. We need, we need uh, to tell our story so well that we can go out in the world and say, we don't believe your lies anymore, that the only way to get happiness is to buy more stuff. We don't believe your lies anymore that we are what we choose to buy. We believe we are what God chose to love. We are what God chose to love. That's who makes us. That's what makes us who we are, right? We come together. We sing the songs that we sing in RUF. We tell the stories that we tell so that we can go out into the world and say to the world, we don't live this way. We don't believe this. We don't believe that we have to get a job in this field for life to work. We don't believe this. We don't believe that we have to have this or we have to have that. The, the, the gospel story comes into radical conflict with so many of the stories that you've been told in your life and are still being told. It comes into radical conflict with the stories that the advertisers want to tell you. It comes into radical conflict with even some of the stories your parents may want to tell you about what success looks like and about what you need to do for the good life. The gospel story challenges all other stories. It's important that we know it. It's important that we inhabit it and that it gets down into the deep parts of our soul. Um, I, I love this quote by Nietzsche. Have you ever heard this quote? He says, if you Christians want me to believe in your God, you need to sing better songs. We need artists not only for us, but for outside. We all need to grow in being able to tell the gospel story in creative ways or ways that do justice to the creativity that God has used. Finally, let me jump down to this last point. God's people are formed by singing. The whole next chapter of the Bible, the entire chapter, is given over to a song. The the fact that the Bible spends a whole chapter to record this song shows how important singing is is. We don't do much corporate singing in our world anymore. In the 50s, if your dad worked for IBM, he sang the company song every day as they started work. 
There's not very many people. Christians are about the only people that gather and sing songs together anymore to build community. It's kind of sad, but it's something that we can't possibly let go of. St. Augustine said one time that he who sings prays twice. It's a very interesting, very interesting quote. What, he, what I think he means by that is that singing always has the power of intensifying whatever is going on. If you're, if you're sorrowful, to sing your sorrow intensifies it. If you're joyful, to sing intensifies the experience. He who sings prays twice. I think that that's something of what's going on here. It's important that we tell the story, but it's also important that we sing the story, which means that we resonate with the story, that, that we rehearse it, right? You can think of all these different, different words and ways we think about making music, and they all apply to the way we think about this story and the way that we relate to it. We need to rehearse it. We need to find our part in the great musical tapestry that is the church and is the kingdom of God. We need to find our ability. What part can we add, right? What counterpoint can we add that makes the whole thing more beautiful and more rich, right? God's people are formed by singing. Singing is formative. Um, You know, actually at the time of the Reformation, one of these Catholic cardinals is, is famous for a statement where he said, that Martin Luther damned more people by his songs than by any of his writings. Now, you've got to understand, he was a Catholic cardinal. But the point he's making is, he believed that Luther's songs were more influential and more important than anything that he wrote. And there's story after story of German Lutherans singing these hymns as Catholic armies come and slaughter them. Right? John Huss is the one who restored singing to God's people. Do you know that the church had outlawed singing by the congregation in the 400s? And until John Huss in the, uh, what was it, the 1400s, um, God's people hadn't sung for a thousand years in church. One of the things that John Huss and the Bohemian uh, Christians in this little movement, countercultural movement, did is restored singing, and he was put to death for it. And of course, as he was burning at the stake, singing a hymn, right? On and on and on. You read stories about the English Reformation and the martyrs and how they sang as they were being put to the stake. On and on and on. God's people are formed by singing. Notice that, that you know, if we had time to look at this song, you'd see this. God and his deliverance is the focus of this song. The, the story that they've just experienced, they put into a song for themselves and for their children so that this story can sink into their hearts. It's why Paul in the book of Colossians, book of Colossians, I mean, is talking to Christians and he tells them that they need to sing to one another psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs as a way to get the word about Christ, which I think is a way of referring to the gospel, into their hearts and into their community. There's something about singing. There's something about singing that involves us. We, we don't, you, you don't just sit on the sidelines and listen to other people sing. You're called to sing, to join in, right? Moses and the people of Israel don't just sing about how they feel. They don't just sing, yeah, this is awesome, we feel great. They sing about the deliverance that God has wrought on their behalf. And, you know, that's, that's why we sing some of the songs we do in RUF, right? 
Now, I'm going to do a whole combo on this, so I'm not going to make a lot of points about this, but I just want to say two or three quick little things. We really believe that it's important that the songs that we sing be shaping and molding us as a people of God. It's important that we sing about the deliverance that God has wrought on our behalf, that we sing about his character. So you see, we know that it's, it's true that we need to be reminded of the promises of God. Just like Joseph was trusting in the promise and then he made his children promise that they would remember the promise by remembering uh, his bones and as a way of getting them to think about this promise made to Abraham and that they would have to keep thinking about it. We need to be reminded of the promise of God. You know, faith feeds on the promises of God. It doesn't do you a whole lot of good to just always sing songs telling God what you want to do. Now, there's a place for responding back to him, but it's so important that we sing about the promises of God because faith feeds on the promises. One of my favorites is Rock of Ages. You know this hymn, Rock of Ages? Augustus Toplady, who wrote that hymn, originally titled it A Living and a Dying Prayer for the Holiest Believer on Earth. I know that's a mouthful, right? That's why that name maybe didn't stick. But it's an important name because what he was saying was, this is the prayer you need for living. This is the prayer you need for dying. And you remember this, this lines from that hymn? Could my zeal no respite? No. That means even if you could stay fired up for Jesus all the time without any rest, could my zeal no respite? No. Could my tears forever flow? That means even if you could weep over your sin the way you need to, weep over your coldness of heart, even if you could do that, he says, all for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. There are so many Christians who are dying, dying, because they're trying to depend upon their zeal and their tears. They need to sing this song and let it sink into their soul because it turns upside down all the crazy screwed up ideas they have about Christianity and what a relationship with God looks like. Songs we sing should direct our gaze upon Christ. Martin Luther was fond of saying, for every one look you take at your sin, take ten looks at the cross. And one of the best ways that Christians have found to do that is by singing songs that direct our gaze upon Jesus. We did that with that that hymn, O Love Incomprehensible. You know, actually, um, that hymn, I took that, that chorus, O Love Incomprehensible, that made thee bleed for me. That's an Augustus Toplady, the guy that wrote Rock of Ages. That's a verse from one of his hymns. All the other verses, except for one, came from a hymn by a lady named Ann Steele. But the hymn from Ann Steele has like 28 verses. It'd be glorious if we had time. Actually, we did a little small group on hymn writers, and we read through that entire hymn, and it was powerful to read all 28 verses. It's like five minutes of just gazing upon Christ step by step as he makes his way to Calvary. There's something about that, about taking 10 looks at the cross. And hymns are many meditations, many, M-I-N-I, meditations upon the cross, an opportunity to sit in a mystery like, and can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? Just to sit in that and go, wow, wow, that changes everything. That's a story that just, it just defies logic at one level. Why would God die for me? Why would the judge of all suffer death to set his prisoner free? See, at one level, this story is a crazy story, the story of the gospel. It makes much more sense to say, you know, the Lord led Israel out into the, into the middle of the, the dry land, and then he let the waters go because he was tired of their bitching and complaining. <laughs> that's the story that it should be, but that's not the story, Right? 
That's the story your heart tells you too, isn't it? The story your heart tells you is, I don't deserve this. I deserve death and hell. And, and, and God's probably going to let the boom down any moment on me because I haven't lived like I'm supposed to live. I don't love him like I'm supposed to love him. I don't do any of the stuff he asked me to do. I don't even read the Bible. I don't pray. I don't do anything. So it's so important that we sing this countercultural story that goes against everything you believe makes relationships work. You have to sing it over and over again before it begins to actually sink in because it's so contrary to everything else and the way everything else works in our world. So let's pray together.